This Sunday on Capital Connection, Illinois' Rocky rollout. There have been a lot of problems with the long-term care rollout. The race to vaccinate the state's most vulnerable population picks up steam, but hits some controversial speed bumps along the way. Legislators getting vaccines, which I think is uh, ridiculous. I'm waiting my turn. Plus, the GOP grapples with the truth. I was allowed to believe things that weren't true. Congressman Rodney Davis joins us after Republicans in Congress confront a conspiracy theorist within their ranks and blowback for the State Board of Education. There's not something wrong with that goal, but if you're going to make that goal, let's leave it in the home setting of the family. Director Carmen Ayala joins us to explain the push for culturally responsive training for teachers. And I believe some of that language has been um, addressed and revised. And a former state senator indicted for fraud and tax evasion. It's all coming up on Capital Connection. From the Illinois State Capitol Rotunda, Capitol Bureau Chief Mark Maxwell is asking the tough questions. This is Capital Connection. Welcome to Capital Connection. I'm Mark Maxwell reporting from the Illinois State House on this Sunday, February 7. Earlier this week, Governor Pritzker granted approval to legislators who are lobbying him to move up farther in that vaccine line. One email from House Democrat Stephanie Kifowit reading, it's beginning to feel like the governor is purposely working against the legislature returning to the work of the people. The longer the governor denies the legislature a safe way to work, the longer it will take to pass significant legislation that the state needs. The governor said he's going to wait his turn, but gave lawmakers the green light to go ahead and get their first shot in the arm. I'm waiting my turn. Uh, I think it's important for many of us to set an example in that way. Many legislators asked if they could be vaccinated because there is so much work that needs to be done but that we're all waiting our turn. Uh, but we need the state of Illinois and its legislature and its government to function well. Uh, we can't wait another, you know, we had seven months or so, even longer, without any legislation really going through. Talks are underway for a central location, a pop-up clinic, perhaps in Springfield, where politicians could come to get their vaccine as part of phase 1B, that second group of essential workers set aside uh, for the vaccination. At the same time, the state announced earlier this week it would claw back or recover some, quote, excess vaccines that were left over in phase 1A intended for long-term care facilities. Governor Pritzker explained what those excess vaccinations were at a press conference in Champaign on Wednesday. The federal government uh, allocated a certain number of vials to the federal pharmacy uh, program. They're, they're working very hard to get through it. And as you know, uh, not only have they gotten through now uh, with a lot of cooperation now uh, between uh, Walgreens, CVS and the state, they've now gotten through all of our uh, skilled nursing facilities, which is where 90% of the deaths have occurred in long-term care facilities. And by February 15th, which is what, 12 days away, uh, we will have, they will have completed all of the long-term care facilities. So, um, so I'm pleased about that uh, eventuality. And again, it's about protecting the most vulnerable people. So you ask about uh, reallocation. Uh, I'll just give you the quick technical answer, which is the federal government pulled out of the doses that were sent to the state of Illinois the number that they thought would be necessary for long-term care. As it turns out, they counted every bed and not every person. As you know, there are facilities that aren't full. 
In addition, they assumed that every person that would be offered, including staff, would take the vaccine. That also has not been the case. So essentially, there's been a reallocation out of that to make sure that we can get as many vaccines into the arms of as many people as possible. But that decision didn't come without criticism or skepticism from other people who are still waiting for their vaccines in phase 1A, especially medically fragile patients, some of them on breathing tubes living in long-term care facilities. Well, it's very disappointing. You know, we've got the most medically fragile population and we are still not done. So I'm just very disappointed in the rollout on this. Our residents are severe and profound, mentally and physically disabled. We have a lot of people that have seizure disorders, people that use a tracheotomy to breathe, um, G-tubes. We have a high medical level here. And yet? Uh... We still don't have our vaccine. But largely, Champaign County is one bright spot in the state's vaccine rollout. That facility at the iHotel Conference Center, a pop-up vaccine clinic, cranking out more than a thousand doses of the vaccine each and every day. You could tell that people were very um, grateful to be there. They were very excited just to have that sense of relief. And there was almost a giddiness to it because I think you know, what's at stake is people's lives and their health. And economists at the University of Illinois said the vaccine itself and its ability to help alleviate or reduce the infection rate of the vaccine are intertwined as the two largest keys to unlocking the untapped potential of the American economy. Right now you hear a lot about vaccinations, but very few people actually have been vaccinated. So, so far the uh, the number of, of people who have uh, have some immunity is very small, but that's going to increase pretty rapidly. So uh, th there's good news in, in the uh, medium term, uh, two or three months in the future about COVID. The other thing is that uh, consumers are uh, uh, sitting on uh, a considerable amount of, of resources that haven't been uh, spent. Uh, the, the downturn obviously was traumatic to many people, but uh, a, a lot of people actually kept their jobs, other people have been supplemented by unemployment compensation or through the various stimulus programs. So the result is that people saved a lot of money during this period of time, not necessarily because they wanted to save, because there were relatively few opportunities to spend it. So uh, the combination of the, of the availability of, of uh, resources and the opening up of the economy, I think, uh, bodes very, uh, a very positive thing for the economy through the rest of this year and into next year. And in other news this week, federal prosecutors charged former state Senator Sam McCann with a nine count indictment, accusing him of tax evasion and fraud using more than $200,000 of campaign cash for personal expenses to pay off his car payment, mortgage payment, personal debt, and to buy big expenses or items at sporting goods stores and other places. McCann could not be reached for a comment. And on Capitol Hill, Republicans wrestle over reality and rhetoric as one of their own embraced a number of conspiracy theories and even supported or liked social media comments and posts encouraging violence against Democrats. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene accounting for, apologizing for some of those remarks in a closed door conference Wednesday night before going to the House floor on Thursday. Behind closed doors, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said he unequivocally condemned her anti-Semitic and conspiracy-filled comments, but would not ultimately remove her from her posts on committees. I denounce all those um, comments that were brought up. Um, everybody, and she came to the she came inside our conference and denounced them as well. 
She said she was wrong. I realized just watching CNN or Fox News, I may not find the truth. And so what I did is I started looking up things on the internet, asking questions like most people do every day. Use Google. And I stumbled across something, and this was at the end of 2017, called QAnon. Well, these posts were mainly about this Russian collusion information. A lot of it was some of what I would see on the news at night, and I got very interested in it. So I posted about it on Facebook. I read about it. I talked about it. I asked questions about it, and then more information came from it. But you see, here's the problem. Throughout 2018, because I was upset about things and didn't trust the government, really, because the people here weren't doing the things that I thought they should be doing for us, the things that I just told you I cared about. And I want you to know, a lot of Americans don't trust our government, and that's sad. The problem with that is, though, is I was allowed to believe things that weren't true. Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger was one of several to criticize Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene for her conspiratorial comments. But closer to home, two Republican county operations in Kinzinger's district held a vote Wednesday night on whether or not to censure him for his vote to impeach President Trump. Grundy County voted overwhelmingly not to censure him, while LaSalle County voted to censure the congressman. A spokesperson for Congressman Kinzinger said the LaSalle County GOP was condemning him for trying to hold the president accountable that led to the death of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick. When we come back, Congressman Rodney Davis weighs in. He's called for cooling down political rhetoric and the temperature that led to political violence. What will he say now? He joins us next. You're watching Capital Connection from the Illinois State Capitol. On Capitol Hill, congressional Republicans held a conference Wednesday night to reckon with their own record on matters of reality and rhetoric, the truth, the fight over fake news, what's real and what's not. Congressman Rodney Davis was in that room along with Congressman Adam Kinzinger, one outspoken vocal Republican who supported Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming in her uh, position to stay in leadership. She won that vote overwhelmingly, but a new freshman member from Georgia under fire for many of her controversial comments. Congressman Rodney Davis joins us now from his offices on Capitol Hill. Congressman, I want to start by asking you about that effort to hold Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene accountable for her comments. How would you characterize the tenor of that conversation? What happened? Well, Marjorie, who I got to know along with all the other freshmen because I helped run the freshman orientation, uh, she apologized for what happened and what she said and, and the comments she made before she was a member of Congress to the entire Republican conference. The meeting last night uh, was a, a short discussion uh, with Marjorie and mostly a discussion on Liz Cheney, who some in our conference wanted to remove as our conference chair. And it was a very unifying conference. Uh, Liz won by a huge margin. She was able to retain her spot. And I think it was a less about Liz Cheney and what she did with her vote and comments afterwards, and probably a little more about the ambition of some of my colleagues to want to take her. That very well may be the case. It was about a year ago, if I recall, maybe a year, uh, two years ago now at the old state capitol here in Springfield, where you said you'd love to be an Illinois delegate at the convention who would nominate Liz Cheney's name to be a candidate for president, to be the presidential nominee. 
uh, big endorsement from you for her. Are you still as enthusiastic about her role, her voice in the Republican Party today as you were then? I think Liz would make a great candidate for president if she ever decides to run, just like many other Republicans that I serve with. Uh, you know, those are things that I, I do believe Liz is a leader. She's able to speak her mind. Her and I don't agree on every vote. We don't agree on every issue. And that's not why we're here. We're here to make sure that we put our country in a direction that's going to grow economically, continue to create jobs, even in the midst of recovering from this historic pandemic. And Liz is somebody who, in my opinion, did not need to be politically attacked for taking a stand that was different from some of my colleagues. And to hear some of my colleagues, unfortunately, talk about how Liz's comments made them have to answer uh, reporters' questions in their district, I kind of got a chuckle out of that because I've been answering questions for years from folks like you about things some of my other colleagues who wanted Liz out have been saying. It's sort of an interesting wrestling match over reality and reason in the Republican Party here. Uh, your colleague, Congressman Adam Kinzinger, made some comments. Uh, you mentioned the effort about putting country first. He's got this new organization uh, called America First, or Country First, rather. And he's trying to reel in the Republican Party back to a base of reality and uh, sort of swat down some of the more uh, outlandish theories. He says the party has become a party of darkness and division, in his words. And he said as many as 150 House Republicans might have actually voted to impeach the president if it weren't for fear of physical retribution or literal violence or threats in their district. I know you've spoken about that. I know you were on the softball field in 2017. I know your office has fielded threats, political threats in recent days. Is he describing you? Have you felt that fear of taking a more vocal or public stance against President Trump or people like him? No, no. You'd have to ask him who he's describing uh, with, with his comments. And look, Adam is one of my best friends in Congress. I really respect him. I respect his I respect what he's been able to do to help me become a better member of Congress. Uh, but Adam and I, we, we have some different feelings on this issue. Uh, there are, uh, there, there might've been more Republicans that voted for impeachment, but, but frankly, uh, that's not why I voted against impeachment. And Adam and I chatted about this. I, I was able to talk to him about where his thought processes were and why he was going to cast a vote a certain way. And I was able to explain to him and my colleagues that my, my concerns were based upon the same constitution that I voted to uphold as my role as a, an election teller on January 6th to certify the electoral college results. Um, I'm also upholding the provisions that our forefather put forth, forefathers put forth when they created the impeachment process. I think the process was rushed. I think it was a pro it's a process that's going to lead to political impeachments in perpetuity anytime you have a different party in the House and a different party in the White House. It's unfortunate. And remember, the impeachment process until President Clinton was impeached, that I now believe was much more due to politics, and then President Trump, Trump impeached twice now due to politics. The last time we had a president impeached in this country was Abe Lincoln's former vice president, Andrew Johnson who was never convicted. It certainly is a heated and interesting political climate we're in today. You've spoken somewhat about the political intoxication, I think you called it. Some people who might take politics 
and almost injected into their veins, if you will, some sort of a life-sustaining source. But the, the Republican Party right now is trying to wrestle with how to hold members of its own accountable for being the bartenders of this politically intoxicating substance, if you will, serving up this content, uh, the, the, the red meat to uh, the rabid wing of its party. Uh, what level of accountability uh, what obligation do members like you have to stand up and rebuff or reject that rhetoric when it's happening? Well, I've been pretty clear. The political intoxication is not relegated to one party. Um, you've been at my town meetings and my uh, you know open government nights where you've seen folks who've been politically intoxicated from the left uh, espouse things that weren't true and issues that you know that I've. I was able to rebut personally with them. But I also am going to say that on January 6th, there were many people that broke the law and broke into the Capitol complex because they believe lies and misinformation. And it's wrong, regardless of what political party you may belong to. And that's a problem in the country right now where people that are politically intoxicated by either side, they, they want to they, they want to put a political litmus test on every decision that's made. And that's something that we all have to work together to make sure that we, we address. And I, I will continue to do that and I'll continue to be a voice, but it also is going to take some assistance from, from others. It's going to take some assistance from the media. It's going to take some assistance from Republicans and Democrats out here. And we did that last night. Marjorie Taylor Greene apologized for things that she said and did before she was elected by her constituents. So we address those issues. But unfortunately, the Democrats here in Washington want to strip her from her committees for something she said and did before she was a member of Congress. If that's the new barometer, I, I, I hate to see what's going to happen to, to some of my other colleagues too for things that they would have said 30 to 40 years ago. So the cancel culture's gotta stop too, Mark. And that's something that I hope we can come together in a bipartisan way to address. I understand our time is limited. I have one other question about the vaccine rollout. We've talked about some words and rhetoric, but about the actions right now, politicians and leaders rolling out the vaccine, trying to bring our economy back online. What do you make of the latest developments in Illinois, the governor allowing state lawmakers to move ahead in line for this vaccine rollout? There's also some hiccups in the process elsewhere. Uh, uh, as they claw back doses and try to uh, expand this rollout. How do you evaluate the governor's decision-making in recent weeks? Well, I, I got a lot of criticism for the governor on a regular basis, especially his, his inability and his administration's inability to address the ever-increasing problems in dealing with the unemployment system, be it fraud, like I've been affected by, or be it unemployment benefits not being given to those who should does, who should get them because they deserve them. That's something to address. Uh, you know, when the governor, the governor has been effective at talking with us about his vaccination rollouts. Here's the good news. The good news is we're going to continue to see an ever exponentially increasing supply of vaccines, especially if we get new vaccines onto the marketplace. That's something that we have to get to. And when we do, I want to see everyone who is especially in the vulnerable populations vaccinated. But we also have to have continuity of government too. I'm not gonna criticize the governor or any state legislators because I wanna make sure that 
our voice, our Republican voice is able to be heard in Springfield. And if that's what it takes to make the Democratic leadership feel comfortable enough to listen to my Republican colleagues' concerns about how to get Illinois out of this pandemic and recover economically and stop the craziness and, and the, mis, uh, the misspending and, and also errors at places like the Department of Employment Security, then let's make sure that we don't talk about a limited supply of vaccines now and into the future. Let's plan for the exponential growth because that's the only way that we're gonna take politics out of this equation, get people comfortable about getting the vaccine and also be able to look at the data that shows you know, who should be prioritized. And I certainly hope that the governor and his team are going to continue to prioritize the most vulnerable in our population, which are our seniors in, in senior living facilities and, and ensuring that the vaccinations are available so that we get kids back in school, we get people back to work. Those are the types of things that I hope we concentrate on rather than just playing politics. All right, Congressman Rodney Davis, thank you for joining us. You're watching Capital Connection from the Illinois State Capitol. New changes could be coming to classrooms across Illinois in its public schools. The State Board of Education now pushing new rules to promote culturally responsive teaching. It would include ideas and perspectives outside of the quote, dominant culture. Illinois Republicans arguing this push would prioritize activism over academics. But the State Board of Education says it wants teachers to take a more sensitive, inclusive approach to take uh, matters of race, gender, and sexual orientation into consideration. But after some public pushback, the State Board of Education now modifying those rules to take out, quote, language perceived as political. Now the rules say culturally responsive teachers and leaders understand that there are systems in our society that create and reinforce inequities, thereby creating oppressive conditions and they should know and understand how a system of inequity creates rules regarding student punishment that negatively impacts students of color. These new rules would call on teachers and students to co-create content to include a counter narrative to dominant culture. House Republican Dan Brady reacted earlier this week. The State Board of uh, Education has lost maybe its priority, maybe its focus and forgotten that public education lies within the important things that we're failing in. Education, mathematics, reading, um, sciences, the list goes on. Um, couldn't we sharpen our skills in all those areas first before we start down a pathway like this, especially in a time when we're facing a pandemic? The director of the Illinois State Board of Education, Dr. Carmen Ayala, joins us now from her home offices in Chicago. Dr. Ayala, we're getting some pushback from Republicans about this culturally responsive teaching. What was the goal? What were you trying to accomplish here? Uh, well, the goal is that as our state becomes more and more diverse, over half of our students are students of color now, and our fastest growing population is our population for which English is not their first language. We need to make sure that in teacher preparation programs, as we're preparing teachers of the future, that uh, we are preparing them to address the needs and to have best practices and what research is saying for addressing those needs to meet the needs of the population we serve in Illinois public schools. Is there any reason to believe right now that teachers are embedding these systems of oppression that are outlined in the rules here? 
No, no, not at all. And I believe some of that language had been um, addressed and revised. Um, it really is about cultural responsive uh, education and really looking at the perspectives of, of all of the cultures and all of the experiences that our students bring into the classroom. It is about taking a look at the resources that are used so that they're not just presenting one perspective, but multiple perspectives. It's hard to ignore the political climate that has overtaken much of our country over the last few years. I wonder to what extent that might have required the changes that you put here. Well, this is something that has been developed by our diverse teacher uh, network group that have been working on this project for uh, quite a few years. Um, and this is the completion and the board has looked at it and has obviously approved these. And so we are, um, this is a bit of work in progress. This is not something that was done within the last year or something like that. Um, it has taken some time. It has gone through feedback loops and, and things of that nature. And so um, it is a sign of the times in that we are uh, really looking at issues of equity um, and issues of perspective and being more inclusive. So really the timing is right uh, and, and appropriate for something like this. And I think that is something that in my opinion, having worked in public education for 38 years now and having worked uh, regard with issues of equity, it's something that has been needed. How do you describe or to what do you attribute this public pushback that we're seeing to these rules now? I think it, you know, people may not understand it. Um, I think that, um, you know, equity work, diversity work, it's a journey. We are all at different points uh, in our own understanding of what that means. Um, we know that just providing equal uh, and giving every child the same isn't getting us uh, to where we need to be. And we can find that by looking at the data and looking at the achievement gaps that have existed. And so we really need to provide what each individual child needs in the learning process to be able to be successful. And layer with that, the ability to look at things from different perspectives and look at um, just a more holistic uh, approach in, in, instead of um, just the standard, um, you know, some of our schools still use some literature pieces that have been around for a very long time. So how can we enrich uh, the curriculum, the conversations, the teaching, so that we truly are preparing our students for a more global society? One portion of the rules stood out. It said these rules help to ensure that teachers and students co-create content to include a counter narrative to dominant culture. What does that mean and what might that content look like? Uh, what, what that says is that um, teachers uh, will be provided with the tools and the ways to engage their students' experiences, their students' perspectives. Um, in the learning process. And that helps to um, engage the students more and help students feel more comfortable with learning. Um, I'll give you an example. In second language acquisition, uh, there is a, a researcher, an expert called Stephen Krashen, and he talks about an effective filter. 
And when that effective filter is up, it's because students don't feel comfortable, they don't feel safe, they don't, particularly when they're learning a second language, it's, it's difficult to try to understand everything that is, is occurring if it's all in one light in the, in the English language. And so whatever we can do to help lower that effective filter so that learning can actually occur and that learning is not blocked and that students are engaged, um, that's really what, what that means. That's certainly one of the takeaways when you read these rules here. It seems effectively like you're saying the more students feel at home, the more likely they are to succeed in achievement or test scores. Is that essentially what you're getting at here? Yes, absolutely. I think the more we can connect with students and with their families, um, the more success we will see. Can you respond to House Republican Dan Brady uh, from Bloomington who said that these new rules might create a new barrier to entry for new teachers try to get into the classroom? This uh, state has a teacher shortage. They're trying to recruit new teachers. Brady is concerned this might add an extra layer of qualification for teachers. Do you share those concerns? It, it isn't necessarily about adding more coursework, right? It's, it's the same concept that we're um, suggesting that we incorporate these things into the learning, not add more courses. So in a teacher preparation program, there may be some activities that uh, teachers engage in, tutoring, uh, those kinds of things where you look at it through an equity lens or you look at it through um, the perspectives, multiple perspectives. So it's, it's really um, reimagining some of the courses and how they're delivering the instruction, just like we're asking teachers to do more of while when they are teaching our students in the classroom. So it's the same type of concept. All right, Dr. Carmen Ayala heading up the State Board of Education. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. We're back in just a moment.